Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I am a high school junior, as well as an absolute lover of everything astronomy. With me today, I have Rishi Sundaresan, a robotic software engineer at Google's Waymo, and an MIT graduate. And today's episode is all about exploring astronomy through the perspective of a robotics software engineer. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us. The best thing that you can do for this podcast is to share it around, so please let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocer, plumber, teacher, professor, anyone who you talk to know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, it's time to begin. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Okay, let's get started on today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of a robotic software engineer. Rishi, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you on. Let's take a minute and please share with the listeners your background into software engineering. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. So I graduated from MIT recently with a bachelor's and master's in computer science, focusing on artificial intelligence and robotics. In terms of my background specifically, in in addition to the classes and research projects I have at MIT, I also have done internships at Airbnb, Lenovo, Neuro, and I'm currently a robotic software engineer on the Waymo simulation team. That's awesome. Um, I'm really excited to get your perspective on astronomy. You know, while you may think like software engineering and robotics and astronomy may be kind of three distinct fields, I feel like there's actually a lot that they have in common. and a lot that they share, and I'm kind of excited to discuss this overlap, and I think that it might be critical for the future. So to kind of discuss this topic, I've created a series of questions about the potential overlaps of astronomy and robotic software engineering, as well as maybe some more personal questions about your experience in the field. So awesome. let's begin. Um, to start off, you know, I'd like to reiterate the theme of this podcast, which is kind of understand your perspective on the subject matter. So what does astronomy look like from the eyes of a robotic software engineer? Yeah, so I guess I'll kind of take a step back to answer this question. In the in kind of the field of robotics and my specific case where in self-driving cars, we, you a robot in our case looks in the, at the world in four steps. It perceives first it perceives what about its environment, like kind of what's going on in its environment. It then predicts what's going on in its environment. Then it plans what to do and then executes that plan. It's like a general kind of four steps here. The core of astronomy, I feel, based on my, albeit limited experience in high school, but the core of astronomy seems to be really perceiving and predicting your environment, right? Yeah. You're essentially trying to sense, you know, stellar temperatures, mass, radii of stars and planets, and really all, all you're, you're just trying to gain more information about your environment. And in the eyes of a roboticist, that's exactly what we want the robot to do as well. So I do think that the way we kind of, the, very, the goals of robotics and astronomy are very intertwined in that sense. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting connection to bring up, right? Astronomy is a very data-heavy field, and as you mentioned, there's tons of data to be collected to get information. And robotics is also a very data-heavy field, as robots have to perceive the environment and get information from it. So I think that's a very fascinating connection. I never thought of it in that direction. 
Um, so for our next question, like, kids have always been curious about, you know, the stars, the moon, and the sun, and, like, other celestial objects, like, when they're growing up. So do you have, like, any similar formative experiences when you were growing up regarding astronomy? What was, like, your first memory of learning something space-related that blew your mind? Yeah, so if I think back, I, I, I kind of had, like, you know, typical questions, you know, you know, what's, uh, what's out there? Are we alone? Kind of the general typical questions that young people have. And... In, in middle school, you know, I, I think I watched Apollo 13 in middle school. It's a really good movie, and I, that's kind of got me really, really interested in, like, this kind of space travel in general. Mm-hmm. In middle school, I also did Science Olympiad, and one of my events, that, or one of the things I competed in Science Olympiad was an event called Reach for the Stars. I had to kind of learn how, basically, the process of stellar evolution up to, like, the understanding of a middle school. And then, I think, a lot of constellations, like 40 of the 88 or something, and that really got me interested because what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to per- perceive and learn about something that we can't observe directly, right? And honestly, you're never going to uh, you're never going to be able to observe what a star looks like directly, right? So it's you're you're basically learning more and more and more data to try to get a better and better understanding of what is out there. And when you have a great understanding of what is out there, I think it. It's it's one of the biggest scientific discoveries, right? You know, how do you progress forward and how do you progress outward in terms of space? When I see like when I see like the history of humanity, right? What what humanity try, always tried to do is progress outward, you know, explore like explore new new and new locations. And now we have this kind of vast, you know, expanse open to us. And it's just something we can't Unfortunately, we can't observe directly like we could just by sailing across the ocean, right? So we have to just make data-driven decisions based on information we have. Right. I think that's a very good connection as well. Like, you know, um, sailors in the past, it wasn't like they could send out a robot or, like, look through a telescope to find out more about, you know, like, Columbus can be like, okay, here's a satellite, I'm going to find out. It's Asia on the other side of this ocean. So I think that that's a fascinating connection, and, you know, I hope, like, not like we're, we'll talk about this more um along the episode but one potential overlap i think is that by sending robots into space maybe we could recreate what exactly. these yeah. earth explorers did but on an interstellar yeah. level but i'm getting ahead of myself so um to what degree do you think you know that astronomy and robotics are interrelated and in what way do you think they further each other's scientific pursuit yeah so if you take at least in my perspective if you take the concept of space travel specifically and if you took maybe the goal of going to mars right that that the process to complete that goal is essentially exactly the process that i laid out as the four steps of robotics right we need to understand what the environment is between us and mars and make a efficient path planning and a path planning algorithm and then execute those that control right so in reality i see i see space travel and space robotics as the next step or the next main application of robotics after self-driving cars. Not that I'm saying self-driving cars will definitely happen. There's a lot of, you know, cautious optimism there. But once once society kind of gets comfortable with that idea, if when I'm thinking, okay, what's the next big, you know, the big great challenge of robotics? It would be space travel. And to my knowledge, I it's with self-driving cars i think we have the the hardware that's i wouldn't say like 100 have but 
we ha- mostly have the hardware required for it. We just now need to, under- need to get the intelligence, the software side working. For space robotics, I'm not sure if we have the hardware yet to you know make a trip to Mars, right? But once we have that hardware, then the intelligence, the data-driven decision-making side becomes a lot more relevant and a lot more interesting. So that's why I think it's a, the next big robotics challenge that will be happening. Cool. Um, so do you think, like, for example, if we're able to perfect the intelligence on Earth, how much of a boost do you think that would give to robotics in space? And to what degree do you think it'll propel that next frontier for robotic exploration? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. Right now, what's kind of happening in the self-driving space is a lot of companies are reaching this kind of blockage where they've it's they've accounted for 99.9% of cases on the road but their models aren't able to generalize to that last 0.01% right mm-hmm. and right right now what we're the big kind of the revolution that we need in ai is ai generalization have being able to you have some sort of decision-making framework generalized past this training data because ML can't really do that, right? You give it training data, it can interpolate very well. It can't really extrapolate very well. And if we're able to solve that problem where, okay, now we have a good method of generalizing to many different situations like humans do, then it, then it becomes very applicable in, in the realm of space robotics, given that, in space, you're not going to have a lot of training data like you do with cars. Hey, you know, what situations you're going to encounter and everything. So if we, you need to have some sort of generalization possibility for your decision-making framework, or else it's really going to be hard to en- encounter and have an intelligent like, robot make decisions in space. That's I never thought about it in that direction. That's fascinating. So kind of... I feel like it's almost like a cycle, right? In order to get more data from space, in order to you know generalize it, we need to spend more craft into space. But in order to spend more craft into space, we need to make sure that they have enough data in order to operate in space. And to get more data, we need to send more craft. And it's almost like it's almost like a circle. Um, but I feel like maybe if we're able to get generalization down on Earth, we could turn it to space. Maybe be able to extrapolate test data more accurately. But so yeah, and I. I guess right now in space travel, there is, uh, if there is a mission to Mars, most likely it wouldn't necessarily be a full, complete, hundred percent, you know, robot-driven path planning framework. It, there would definitely be some sort of, you know, commander driver, right? To, right. So, so that would help in terms of what level of intelligence is needed. But I do still think that, you know, if you're going to go through an asteroid belt, I know I'm probably like referencing a lot of movies or something, but if you're going to go through an asteroid belt, right, you're, it's going to really help to have some like a better decision-making framework than just a human eye. Um, so I think this provides really effective segue into my next question, which is, um, you know, we've talked about AI and ML now to some degree and how that can be used for space exploration, but kind of bringing it back to earth, you know, data finding or like data collection, as you mentioned, is a huge part of astronomy. And a lot of that data is from telescopes all across the wavelengths. And to what degree do you think that like automation can be feasible in astronomy research through analyzing images from telescopes? I've seen models do it to varying degrees of effectiveness. And I kind of wanted to get your opinion on to what degree do you think this could be useful for that case? 
so maybe it would help. To, uh, it might help for you to give me a couple examples of what where it's been used. Sure. So, for example, there's an algorithm called Sparkfire that looks at galaxy images and then will return the pitch angle of the galaxies. Um, it's purely it uses a vision APIs, purely machine learning uh, based, and the effectiveness varies. It tends to underestimate the data, for example. So that's kind of just um, a brief example of the algorithm, the algorithms that are in place in order to analyze astronomy images. And I was wondering, like, how do you think we can ameliorate this problem? Because obviously these aren't perfect. Um, how can we change them for the better? Or like, what aspects of them would we have to change in order to make them better algorithms? So based on what I say, I'm not, I guess I'm not too familiar on specifically what kinds of what kind of information you can get specifically from images? You know, like what comes to mind is if you give me an image of a star, I can, you can probably train a model easily to kind of detect, you know, maybe estimate its temperature based on a variety of factors like color or something. It could be transferable between the work that's done, you know, let's say in self-driving self-driving car space, and the work that's done. The astronomy space is is feature detection, and that's a pretty, you know. It's an evolving field in ML where you're essentially, the goal is to be able to pick out very important parts of images that help, you know, classify what it is. Mm -hmm. And these features, you know, the simplest way of doing this is something called edge detection, where you give it an image and you're able to kind of do a pixel. You look at the, it would just look at the pixel differences and it says, hey, there's a huge pixel difference here to here. That's probably an edge, and then it can outline the edges of an image, and that's like a very simple way of doing it. Right. And then if you look at it, if you kind of take the application of a deep neural net, you can be able to identify a lot more complex features and images. And as that specific sector of ML expands and evolves, I do think that'll help a lot with detection of features in you know images in space, stars, planets, galaxy tilt, quasars, etc. So you think that it all comes down to feature detection, I think, is kind of the gist of what you're saying. So is there a way to improve feature detection? And for example, like one of the main reasons the Sparkfire algorithm underestimates is that it's difficult for it to identify what are the arms of the galaxies versus what are dark matter bulges that are kind of offsetting the data, or what is some noise in the background from stars, for example. So in what way could feature detection be improved potentially to assist astronomy research? Right. So when I think about, you know, how do you improve an ML model, there's two ways of going about it. You either improve the architecture. So you improve basically, given the training data, how well can it work with the training data? Or you improve the training data itself. And I guess I'm not necessarily too familiar with how much training data there is on galaxies. I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot you know, given that how, how many you can image. Yeah, they've been photographed pretty extensively, so. Yeah, so I, there is, a, there is you know, some parts of deep neural nets that can generalize in, in terms of feature detection in anything. Like, you can take, like, a ResNet. It's, I think, like a 34-layer neural net. You can throw it on anything and train it, and it, you can teach it to, like, detect some sort of features that are very sophisticated, and in, so in terms of how that, you know, will help the application of, of identifying galaxies and galaxy tilt, I think it really comes down to, you know, how, how well can you make your architecture and how, can, can you do a great architecture search 
that can optimize really what you're, the performance you're going for. And just just to kind of backtrack here, architecture search is a new field of ML where instead of basically throwing a neural net on something, now we throw like 15,000 different types of neural nets on training data. And we see, okay, which, which way performs best. So we're essentially learning the model that will learn on the training data. And I think that is a really interesting frontier that could help in these cases. So it's like auditioning for a school play, for example. You're looking at a lot of people who are applying for the role and you're seeing which one is the best. And then through the audition process, that person learns and then you can kind of teach the person even more how to you know, perform their lines better or whatever. So I think that's fascinating, yeah. Um, so kind of just to like recap what you're saying, is it kind of the idea that in order to you know improve feature detection, we just have to increase the volume of neural nets that we put on a data set or on a test data set, and that'll kind of just improve their accuracy and their precision in observing these values better. Yeah, I mean, so, so there's not you know one end all be all way to do things. Kind of, it's it's really dependent on the application. It depends. It really depends on you know the types of images, the types of training data. But a general rule is that a general way of approaching it is hey, let's you know not, not maybe not even neural nets, but other sort of you know models. Let's just try to learn the best architecture rather than just learning the best weights from it for an architecture. Yeah, this has been a really fascinating conversation so far. Um, so kind of to delve into the more cosmology side of things, um, immense computing power is really required for simulations, of course. And, you know, AI is all about, you know, learning from test data sets, predicting. That's what ML is all about. So I was wondering, you know, we've been talking a lot about the practical applications of this technology, but one of the biggest areas of research, especially in cosmology, is we have a general idea of how the universe started, but we don't know how it's going to end. So in what way do you think that AI and ML could be applied to analyzing these test data sets to kind of model the life of the universe and and like kind of see where it ends up? And kind of... I, I like I kind of I'm interested in looking at it from the perspective of AI and ML. Like, what kind of algorithms would you have to use, and what kind of neural nets would you have to use in order to predict something this immensely complex? I see. So, I guess what kinds of data? So, if, let's say you're trying to model universe expansion, right? You're maybe trying to. I notice a theory out there that the universe will expand up to a certain point, and then rebound and collapse, and then it's like a cycle with the Big Bang. Yeah. So. You know what? What kinds of data do the astronomers have available to them in, when they kind of look at these? So essentially, the main data would be how fast is the universe expanding by looking at the redshift of galaxies on the edge of the universe, um, looking at how old is the universe, how large is the observable universe, and what are the characteristics of the universe that we know now. Like for example, astronomers know that at the start of the universe, um, matter antimatter pairs form together, but out of one in a billion a matter pair formed without an antimatter pair, meaning that the universe was formed just because of this seeming cosmic accident. So we know little tidbits like that that contributed to the forming of our universe and the formation. And we know like the general structure of it based on our analysis of the cosmic microwave background. So I think that would be kind of the comprehensiveness of the data looking into how the universe will end. So I see, I see. And I guess, to, so if I'm correct, Redshift was discovered in the early 1900s. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes, right. by Hubble. So if, I, if I'm, I'm just trying to think, okay, so once we discovered it, maybe how, how long have we been tracking Redshift and 
the universe expansion would be like 1800 years right yeah, maybe yeah so because uh, i'm thinking so if you have 100 years of training data could you you know could you interpolate or get get something from that and it's an it's an interesting question right now with again without the ability to generalize past your train data domain i think it's going to be really hard to kind of extrapolate okay what happened before we started measuring and what's going to happen after so I, yeah so i i do think that it's not going to really be able to like, you know you're not going to throw like an image classification neural net and be able to have a, a really accurate answer but i do think overall once we once we are able to, you know, maybe find measurements that can give us some sort of ideas of what the universe was like in these quantities, at the, maybe at the very beginning, and as well as if we can predict, hey, this is what this is what's going to maybe going to happen, you know, or like 100, 200 years on the road, maybe we could, maybe we'd be able to, you know, have learn some recurrent neural networks or time series based neural networks and in general like a lot of just regular linear learning algorithms a bunch of just general mumbo jumbo <laughs> so this probably indicates how kind of either it indicates basically like maybe I, that i'm a little skeptical about how we can use ai in that field right now but yeah i, I think that there are definitely possibilities but Without, without an ability to generalize and only having the train data that we have, it seems very hard to solve that problem. Right. So, in general, um, pun intended, we would kind of need more generalization and we would need more training data in order to even think about cracking the solution. And I agree with you, like, this is a very, very difficult question that astronomers have grappled with since, you know, the beginning of time. Um, but, you know, who knows, maybe in the foreseeable future, we'll be able to develop artificial intelligence to a point where it may predict what happens. So, Awesome. This was an incredible conversation. And to wrap it up, I kind of want to ask, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners? Like any message to the students, robotics software engineers, or astronomers who might be listening? Yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is, you know, I think I do think robotics is a very interesting field, and I, I'll maybe talk about the reason why I like it so much. It's it, I I do feel it's a really nice it's or it's a really good combination of a really interesting technical problem with a lot of very interesting applications and kind of very interesting companies with applications as well as research research teams with applications in the world and if if you know anyone listening is interested in robotics i definitely think they should pursue it there's so many different avenues to it medical robotics space robotics self-driving cars you know Roomba, one of the most actual actually popular robotics products out there so in general this field is really interesting and i encourage anyone if they're interested to pursue it Thank you so much, Richie, for coming on the show. I hope you listeners are a little bit more enlightened. I know I sure am. And I hope to see you back next time. Clear skies. Thank you so much. The Sky Simplified podcast is created, hosted, produced,
produced and edited by Pranet Sharma. The music is by Pranet Sharma. Thank you for listening, and as always, clear skies.